this doxology that we're in, in verses 15 through 16, we'll do uh, one more one more week of it uh, next week, but we're just going to kind of run off the end of verse 16 in the doxology next week and dive into verse 17. Um, so this is really kind of the end of working through this doxology, which I think we've done for, what, two weeks, maybe? Um, and so... We talked a few weeks ago about what a doxology is. It's a formal, kind of like a liturgical form of praise. And the doxology is intended, so we've got to think about what is Paul's agenda. Paul's writing this. This is how we understand scripture. We need to understand what the author intended, what the author meant, and also what the audience would have understood. So we get an idea of what the author meant when we can understand what the audience would have understood it as. And so our goal is, and we kind of did this last week when we talked about the sovereignty of God, we talked about elements of God's sovereignty that are not specifically in this text, but one of the important things that exposition requires is for us to dig into the mind of the author who's writing these things. So like last week when Paul calls God the only sovereign, well, we need to understand what Paul knows about God's sovereignty because he's implying it when he uses that word. And so digging into the author's mind, trying to get the, the, the under, an understanding of the meaning of the author is important. And so the intended meaning of this entire doxology for Paul is to elevate our praise to God by communicating to us the praiseworthiness of God. And that praiseworthiness of God is expressed by Paul in this doxology in several descriptions of his nature, attributes, and characteristics that are so far beyond humanity that we are humbled by him and satisfied by his grace to make himself knowable in our greatest treasure, Jesus. So that's the agenda here. I think that Paul wants to create praise. I think Paul is realizing all the things that he has taught Timothy throughout this letter. He gets to the end and he's realizing, look at what God is doing. Look who God is. All the descriptions and, and information that Paul has taught regarding the nature and character of God and Jesus and the church and, and all the, the practical stuff and the doctrinal stuff and all of it, and all the practices and instructions. And, and it culminates for Paul in this praise of God. But as Paul praises God, in the praise itself comes with its Elements of who God is that give us cause and reason to praise him. And so that's what this doxology is. And that's why we get these very like superlative words like blessed, sovereign, king of kings, lord of lords, immortality, unapproachable, things like that. That to elevate the grandeur and the supremacy and the glory and the greatness and the sovereignty of God. I think... What Paul is doing is saying, I don't want to just recite these words of praise. I mean, I, I, was, I don't know if you've ever been to like a, um, I don't want to name a particular type of church or denomination because that might not be fair. So I've gone to churches in the past where, uh, you know, I was like a kid where um, the... the pastor or the preacher or the father or the priest or whatever he might be 
um, wears a gown and a robe. There's lots of kneeling involved. Um, and <laughs> they even give you a pad for kneeling. So, um, and it's not just, okay, I'm just going to say Catholic. It's not just Catholic places. Um, there's other places too. And, and what they do is what we call liturgy. So it's like a liturgical reading of things. And so they'll, they'll recite these doxologies and they'll stand up there and it's this monotone recital of this particular set of phrases that are, the words themselves are good, but the tone and the manner in which it's done doesn't feel at all like what Paul is doing here. Like, I can't imagine Paul being like, everybody gather, sit quietly, listen. And then he says, he who is the blessed, the only sovereign, the king of... I'm like, there's no way what we know about Paul that he's going to recite this doxology with such a lack of energy and excitement and joy. I think Paul is probably more like just writing and then he's like talking about Jesus and as he's talking about Jesus and he's talking about his battle with the faith, his battle with God, his battle against his enemies or his opponents and the glory of Jesus, he stops says, he who is the only blessed and then goes on and says all these doxological phrases and this is truly an outpouring of Paul's heart, a bursting forth of joy about who God is so that the church could read this and go, that's who God is. And this is so important. So when I was praying this morning, I'm sitting there praying and thinking to myself as I'm praying, like, what do I want, God? Like, I'm asking God, what do I want? What should I want your people to get this morning? Because the words were already written on this paper. So this is what you're going to get. <laughs> but as I thought about it more, I'm like, I, I ultimately, I'm going to describe to you what these words mean and what this text is conveying and what truths about God are revealed here. But there's a great purpose here that Paul is trying to do. He's trying to create a heart of praise, a heart in you and a mind about God that cannot contain itself and must burst forth in praise. It must celebrate this God. And in order for Paul to do that, what he does is he elevates the nature of God. He looks at who God is and he genuinely says, there is no human mind that can grasp the reality of who God is. He is beyond human capacity. And, and, and so we, the only way to describe that is to use words. And words are limited because words describe ideas that we can understand. And so we've come up with words that describe ideas that we can't understand. And we say things like unfathomable and unimaginable and unable to understand. And so we got words that describe our inability to do something, but that's something that we want to understand is still not a tangible reality for us to grasp and hold and, and really consider or think about or understand. And that's a good thing when it comes to God. Paul's purpose here is to reveal to you the grandeur of God, the supremacy of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God, the, the, the reality 
of the existence of God and who he is and what he's like in such ways that we truly look at him. And as we look at him or think about him or consider him, we just kind of put our hands up and go, I don't know. And I don't think Paul wants us to not know about God. That's not at all what the intention is here. The intention is that as we consider him, he genuinely blows our minds. Like, like as we recognize how unrecognizable he is, we are in awe. That's the aim. And in that awe, we find a beautiful reality, which we'll get to. In that awe... We should be depressed because we consider the grandeur, greatness, supremacy, glory of God and his almightiness, his power, his rule, his sovereignty, his mind that is beyond our comprehension. As we consider all that, we're kind of fall on our knees and go, well, then what am I and what's the point? And this God is just too grand and it's a depressing reality until God does something phenomenally great, which we'll get to, that brings it all together. So I think as I was praying this morning and I was asking God, I said, God, I want your people, because I think you want this from your people, to have, to put it in colloquial terms, to have our minds blown. For us to consider you, to think about you, to have a perception of you that as we get closer to you, in understanding, we realize that there is no getting closer to you in understanding. Though we grow in our knowledge, that knowledge itself reveals to us there is no attaining to that knowledge of God. He is unreachable, or as Paul says in this text, unapproachable. So I want that for you, I want you to just kind of be almost lost in your attempt to find God. Because as we get lost, God does some finding and it's pretty glorious. So there are three descriptions in today's text about God here. And I told you a couple weeks ago that we would go through each of these descriptions of his character and attributes one at a time, like one per week. Uh, But the nature of this verse serves the meaning of the verse much better when we combine all three of these realities of God and understand them together. So we're going to do most of verse 16. And in verse 16, Paul writes, who, so he's talking about God, God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So let's just work through this kind of one word at a time and break it down and we'll understand it better and then we'll kind of wrap it all up and bring it together. So we're gonna, you're going to learn some Greek today. So uh, you don't have to remember this, but it's good if you do. And I think that the Greek actually helps us understand it. <clears throat> Oftentimes I have to do Greek work on my own and I don't tell you about it. I just find out what it teaches me and then I just explain it to you and you never you don't know you know what I'm, you don't know what I was doing. But here I'm like I think this helps for you to see some of this Greek. Um, if the idea of hearing Greek you're like oh gosh I'm not going to understand this. This is really simple. This isn't too much for you. So, let's start with the Greek word. The Greek word for alone is manos. M O N O S from which we get our English word mono, 
referring to one or solo as translated here alone. Much like how the word monologue, we put mono as a prefix to a lot of words, like a monologue is what I'm doing right now, like a sermon. It tells us that one person is doing the speaking versus a dialogue, which that dia free pretext a prefix um, means two. So there'd be two people talking in a dialogue, one person talking in a monologue. And so also this Greek word tells us that immorality is possessed only by God. Mono. Now, the Greek word for has, so God alone has, the Greek word for has is echo. Can you guess what English word we get from the Greek word echo? Does anyone know? Echo. Good, good investigation. All right. The Greek word echo, we get our English word echo, and it means, now this might throw you through the loop a little bit, it means to possess. But you wouldn't think of the way we use the English word echo. You wouldn't think of possession as the meaning of the word. Maybe more like reflection or, I don't know, echoes bounce off walls. The correlation between the Greek meaning of possess and the way we use English does make sense, though. When you yell in an empty room and you hear your echo, that echo, though distant from you and delayed, is still yours. You possess that sound. It came from you. It's yours alone, even though it doesn't sound like it. doesn't sound like it's yours because it's delayed from your mouth, which is why we calling it an echo makes sense. Because by calling it an echo, we clarify that though it does not sound like it's yours because it's delayed, it is yours. So the idea of possession is reflected in this word echo. And I think that's an interesting connection between the Greek meaning of possess and the way we use it in English. Because though immortality is God's possession, and we just learned that it is his alone, this is one of God's communicable attributes. He shares immortality with us. So when we put on immortality... It may seem like it's ours, but it isn't. It's his, and we are wearing it. And the immortality that we put on is but an echo of him, much like your voice is an echo of you. So though it is a communicable attribute that he shares with us, Paul is reminding us that the immortality we have from God is meant to echo the nature of God. Now, The Greek word for immortality is only used one other place in Scripture. Now, this word immortal or immortality, it is in English. You'll see it in other places in Scripture as well, not just these two places. Um, But it's a different Greek word for immortality. And so this particular Greek word for immortality is used here in 1 Timothy 6 and also in 1 Corinthians 15, 53 and verse 54 where Paul says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the same that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So, 
you can see that this immortality that Paul just said is God's possession alone, he also says is something we, his body, his children, get to put on one day. Like Paul just says in 1 Timothy 6, it's God's alone. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, same Greek word, same meaning, same truth, immortality. He says, we are perishable and we are mortal, but we must, the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal, us, must put on immortality. And what Paul is revealing is that is a thing that's going to happen at the culmination of the death of death. So why does Paul say in 1 Timothy 6 that God alone possesses this immortality if we are told that we will also put on immortality? The reason is because no one has yet to put on immortality. In 1 Corinthians 15, the immortal that Paul is referring to specifically are immortal bodies. He's talking about a physical body. Bodies that will physically convey that which is spiritually and supernaturally real, that we are made new and that we have been perfected. No one has experienced that completion of immortality yet. Not even all the believers who have died before us, not even Paul yet has experienced the immortal body. Only Jesus has put on immortality. And he's God, so... Paul's statement that still stands that God alone possesses immortality. So don't get immortality confused with eternality. Immortal doesn't equal eternal. They're related and they're required of each other, but they're not the same thing. Dead believers today are and will always be eternally secured But when scripture uses the word immortality, it's referring to those bodies, to our bodies, to our future spiritually renewed bodies as incorruptible bodies that represent the nature of our renewed and incorruptible souls that we will enjoy. Immortal bodies that house our perfected souls for eternity. Our possession of those immortal bodies won't happen until the return of Christ. It's not until the end of days. Even for our brothers and sisters who are currently, as scripture calls them, asleep. Even they don't have the immortal body yet. Only Christ has put on the resurrected body. Which is one of the important fundamental and foundational realities to Jesus being called the firstborn from the dead. That he's the first one to rise from death into immortality the way he has, into an immortal body. Meaning, whenever a believer reads these verses about immortality, they are reading them in their mortality. Which means immortality is yet to be fulfilled because Jesus has yet to return. Meaning, no one other than God possesses immortality. When we do all possess immortality, we will all be with the Lord together and the fulfillment of God sharing this attribute of himself with us will finally be complete. So what does the word immortal actually mean? It means incorruptible, unable to decay, unable to die, unable to be destroyed and unable to diminish in any way. It lasts 
forever, eternally in perfection. So let's put immortality together with a couple of other biblical ideas so that we better understand God's purpose of magnifying his glory forever. God is infinite, meaning all of who he is, every aspect of his being, every characteristic, every attribute, every detail of his nature is infinite, without borders, without end, and without endless depth and height and width and breadth of containment. There is no, there's nothing that holds him down. There is nothing that restricts him. The only thing that he follows is himself. The only thing he must do is that which he determines he must do. There is no containing God. There is, <clears throat> there is no end to him. This, this is a concept we just don't exist in. Though we are eternal beings, we still live within the finite nature of creation. Everything has a beginning and an end. Everything has a start and a finish. Everything has life and then dies. Even things that aren't alive still decay and die. So there is a, our experience in, in, <clears throat> in our life and all of reality is a constant recognition of the opposite of immortality, which is mortality. And what we don't see is the infinite because everything in our creation is so finite. Even us. Though we're eternal, we are still finite. And so to conceive of, to think about, to consider a God that is infinite, that is no borders, that has no restraints, that is beyond comprehension, <clears throat> that, that his love will say. So take a, a simple and knowable attribute that we call love. Does, we, we, we know God's love. We know God's love in Christ. We experience God love, God's love. We can feel God's love. We can explain God's love. We can interpret God's love. We can describe God's love. We can point out God's love. We can show God's love. God's love is so tangible and so real and in a lot of ways so finite because it's so available to us to put our hands on and to use and to see and to grasp and to understand. But the reality is God's love is infinite. And you have no concept of God's love. And I can say no concept because that's because <clears throat> you could argue that, of course, I have a concept of God's love. I've experienced God's love, seen it and felt it and know it in Jesus Christ. That's what scripture tells me. So, yes, of course, you know God's love and you, you, you can be aware of God's love and you can understand God's love and you can describe God's love and you can experience God's love. But the reality is it is infinite. So the minor little tiny little portion of God's love that you are getting is but a taste of something that has no end, that has depths beyond your brain's ability to comprehend. And just imagine how grand and great and awesome that love must be if the tiny little sliver that you've tasted has saved you for eternity. That that little pinch is so powerful. And his is infinite. You, we can't, we don't get that. 
Like, like we get the idea that it's not gettable and we understand, the, you, you, you understand the words I'm saying, but the reality of reaching into the infinite nature of his characteristics and attribute and person is inconceivable. And it's meant to be that way. Because we're supposed to go, oh, I don't, you're just so amazing, God, I don't, I can't even describe you. Imagine if, and I've said this before, and I think this is a great illustration. Imagine if I just said, you know what, guys, forget the rest of your life, okay? We're going to cater food into this building for you to eat for the rest of your life. You're never leaving this room. For the next, how many ever years God has assigned for you to live, we're going to sit here, and I am going to preach to you the nature of God forever without end. And I could go on and on describing all of his characteristics, and, and I'll, maybe I'll give you some bathroom breaks, but... I'm going to go on and on describing the nature until I die or until you die. And if you die, we'll just cart you out. Be like, well, another one goes to glory. We don't even have a funeral. We don't have time for that. We got to describe God's nature. Now, obviously, that's not what God wants us to do with our life. But if we did that and spent, see, you know, the next 40, 50 years diving into those things and explaining them every second of every day, how much deeper would we get into God's infinite nature? None. No deeper. At all. Now you could say, well, that's not true. We learned more. We grew more. We understood more. Of course we got deeper. But that's the problem and the difficulty with the concept of infinite is it has no end. So depth is immeasurable. It's inconceivable. And this is the point. Paul's like, that's what I want you to get. You can't get it. That, that we've got these words that were written in Koine Greek and then, <clears throat> and then in the Old Testament in Hebrew. And there's a little bit in the New Testament that's Aramaic. But it's written in Greek and then they were translated into other languages and translated into English. Now we've got these English words and we understand what these English words mean. And at best, we could go back to the original Greek and figure out what those words, you know, what it means. So we can get the really good understanding of scripture. But that's what the translators have already done for us. So we have it in English. And so, so we, we dig into these words. And these words describe God and they explain his character. And these words are the words that our God determined I want you to know. So there is a very glorious and good purpose to these words. And at the same time, these words completely and utterly fail to communicate the nature of God as much as they are perfectly ordained by God to communicate the nature of God. Because as much as God reveals about himself in the word, one of the realities that Paul is revealing to us right now in the word is God is unreachable unattainable, unknowable, indescribable, inconceivable, unfathomable. And since he is infinite and we are finite and his sovereign will is to cause us to join him after this life, he does not make us infinite like him so that we can join him. He doesn't make us infinite. We stay finite, but he does, by his grace, give us an infinite amount of time after this life to enjoy his endless revelation of his glory, hence eternal life. And for us to 
enjoy his infinite glory for eternity, we must to be like him in terms of longevity. Meaning, in order to experience an infinite God, it requires an eternal amount of time. And in order to survive that eternal amount of time, we must have a longevity in an immortal body so that we can enjoy him for an infinite amount of time, his infinite nature as he eternally reveals his glory to us. So immortal bodies are necessary for eternal life and eternal life is necessary to enjoy the fullness of an infinite God. Now, immortality, that's something we can grasp. We can grasp that. That makes sense to us because it relates to physical nature. The immortal thing that we put on is a body, a physical, literal, resurrected body, a renewed body that Scripture tells us we will put on one day. So that's a a physical thing. And when we go to heaven, we're not going to be these floating orbs of souls, okay? We are going to, and we call it heaven, it's really a new earth, and uh, we're going to be in human flesh for eternity. Not this one, but a new one, like Christ gets or got and so that idea of immortal and immortality and immortal bodies, that's graspable, graspable for us because it's physical in nature. It is something that puts infinite and eternal into a physical body as a means for us to experience that which is not something we can grasp. But as Paul continues in verse 16, he takes us deeper into things that remove all physicality it remove, he removes all tangible <clears throat> and touchable and experiential reality. And he reveals a facet of God's existence that creates an infinite gap between the creator and the created. Paul says of God in verse 16, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen <clears throat> or can see. First, the use of the word dwells here, to me, is almost laughable that Paul would use the word dwells. Because in our experience, to dwell within something conveys our dependence on that place of dwelling. That's why we dwell in it. We depend on it. And we're in this building right now. We depend on this building to have church. You could say, well, we don't need this building, though. We could go meet outside. Well, then we depend on the atmosphere to worship God there. We can meet at your house, and we're depending on that building. Your home is your place of security. You, You dwell in your house because you require a dwelling for security. But God needs no such security. And his dwelling does not and cannot contain him like our dwellings do. Our dwellings become places of containment. They keep us in for a variety of reasons. They keep us safe. They keep us out of the elements. They, but, but it has that our dwelling, in a sense, has a form or some version of authority over us. Now, we have authority over that building. You could add on to it. You could tear it down. You could redo the walls. You could do whatever you want to your dwelling. But you depend on it. And because you depend on it, it has some sort of authority in your life. Elevation of power in your life. 
because you depend on it. So to say that God dwells in anything or dwells anywhere might put a faulty notion in our minds that there is a place that can contain God, which is impossible to contain God, which is why I say it's almost laughable. But I do say almost laughable because God does dwell within something because that's what Paul says. And that something is the radiance of his own nature, the radiance of his own perfections and of his own glory, meaning God dwells within himself. It's the only thing that God can dwell within because there's nothing that's greater than God that could contain God. So the dwelling of God has to be himself. And again, because we're humans and we live in a physical world and our experience is physical, we, we always want to place God in a place. Like the number of times, when I imagine God, if you said, imagine God on a throne. First of all, he's sitting on a throne. That throne is containing him. And in my mind, it's this like, you know, maybe like, you know, 12th century giant cathedral type throne room where his throne is and he's sitting there and there's stairs up to his throne and there's a a red or purple carpet that goes up to him signifying his royalty and he sits there with a crown and he's like I'm God like it's like so I'm thinking of like a king from England from 500 years ago like that's that's the capability of my mind as I minimize God down to like an earthly king just in a visual and physical manner just so I can grasp him And I don't think that's fair to the nature of God because none of that could contain God. God dwells within himself. It's the only thing that God can be in is himself. So we try to put these parameters on God and visualize God as maybe an, an old man or something, as a human, and then we put him in this place and we put him on a throne. You're like, yeah, but scripture says he's on the throne. Well, it's a metaphorical throne, first of all, right? But Jesus sits on a throne that, not so metaphorical. And so we kind of mix our analogies in scripture. And the reality is that God exists not in a physical manner. Jesus tells us in John chapter 4, God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. Meaning God doesn't have the physical parameters that we experience or that Jesus experiences. And so to, to think of God in this place that is containing him, that he's inside of, or it doesn't make sense. The only thing that God dwells in is the radiation of his own excellence. He surrounds himself with his own excellence. God did not find a home to live in and then call it light as if he discovered something outside of himself because nothing exists outside of God. So rather God exists in a manner that is truly intangible, unknowable, unfathomable, and that manner in which he exists because it is incomprehensible is communicated to us in a way that allows us to put some framework of understanding to the existence and reality of God, which is why Paul says that God dwells in something. Because we don't know how else to communicate the existence of God and what surrounds him. 
So we got to put things into words that convey a physical reality so our brains can grasp some element of his nature. So don't let our limitations of language that are incapable of communicating things that are imperceivable hinder us from realizing that the reality of God infinitely exceeds our ability to properly communicate and understand a God who cannot be contained. Yet, there is something in which he dwells. Paul also says that this God who dwells in something is also one whom no one has ever seen or can see. At the end of verse, or in the middle of verse 16. It is because of that in which he dwells that makes him unseeable. We'll get to the dwelling place in a minute, but it is because of that in which he dwells that makes him unseeable. Now, I want you to hear this statement because this is, this is the direction we're going to said earlier that as we try to fathom and grasp and understand this unknowable, inconceivable nature of God that is beyond our comprehension, what we realize is God is unreachable and unapproachable and ungettable and unfindable ultimately. Beyond our comprehension, we'll never get to him. And that's Paul's aim. I think Paul's aim is to make us realize this God transcends all our understanding of reality. How could we ever approach him, let alone figure out what direction he's going in? Because he can't even be in a direction. Because that would require physical location, which God doesn't have. And, and so this God becomes unfindable, unseeable, unknowable, unreachable, unattainable. And that's the aim for us to go to realize that and go, you're just, you're amazing. I wish I could have you. I wish I could know you. I wish I could see you. I wish I could find you. I wish I could reach you. I wish I could enjoy you. You sound pretty darn enjoyable. The unseeable nature of God, the Father, the unfindable and unreachable and unattainable and unsearchable and unapproachable and intangible nature of God is what makes his seeable, viewable, findable, tangible, and knowable existence of God in the flesh of Jesus Christ so graciously and mercifully wonderful. I'm going to hold, I'm going to, I'm going to contain my tongue <laughs> and explain the, our inability to see God before I dive into Christ. God told Moses in Exodus 33:20, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. God isn't saying that if we peek behind the curtain and see him, that he'll punish us for cheating. He's not the wizard of us. Okay? Rather, God is saying that the magnitude of his glory is too great for the human body and the human mind to comprehend. And if God turned up the volume of his glory before our eyes, the physical nature of our being would literally cease to live. 
Just like how if you were standing in front of a 10-foot speaker and the volume was turned all the way up, it would explode your, ear, explode your eardrum, it'd kill your eardrum, and you would be deaf. So also, God's glory at full volume would kill the totality of our living experience. We would die. We couldn't survive it. It's, it's too much. There's a reason that Scripture describes God as something, someone we should fear. The, the angels show up in the Old Testament. First of all, if you want to get an idea of what... We use the word angels, and we think of angels as these guys in white gowns with wings. Uh, angels in Scripture never have wings. Seraphim do, uh, but angels don't. So like Gabriel, Michael, the ones that are named, those guys don't have wings, okay? First of all, so second of all, read Ezekiel, chapters like one, two, and try to imagine in your brain the angels that are being described in Ezekiel. Your brain cannot create the images that are being described in detail about what these angels look like. It's weird and awesome and it just and then and then you look at these instances in scripture in the old testament where the angels arrive and they stand before godly men who love god and fear god and what do those men do in the presence of the angels they fall on their face why they are terrified so what do these angels look like they're terrified and those Angels, what do they say to those men? Get off the ground. I'm not God. Don't worship me. Which is why we can tell when it's a Christophany, when it's Christ who shows up in the Old Testament. Because when they do fall on their face before an angel of the Lord, is what he's called, and then he says, you're doing the right thing, worship me. We know that's Christ. We know that's the Son of God. And so, there's a, we get a glimpse from those Experiences from those things in Scripture, we get a glimpse of the magnitude of fear that is realized when you're in the presence of a spiritual being. How terrifying could Satan make himself? Just think about this. Have you ever watched a horror movie that scared you so much you just can't get it out of your head? Have you ever watched the scariest movie? Just think of the scariest movie you've ever seen in your life. I don't watch those kinds of movies anymore. I used to. Um, I just don't even bother with it. I don't want to be scared. That just, that's dumb to me. <laughs> I want to be happy, not scared. So um, you think about where that fear comes from. How, easy, how much more induced could fear be? You're watching a TV screen and you know it's not real. Imagine if it showed up in your living room and it was real, how terrified you'd be. Now imagine that's an, the enemy scaring you. How much... More could the God who created that being terrify you. He is inconceivably terrifying. We should fear him. And this is the awesomeness of the gospel. That God turns our fear into reverence. So when we're commanded to fear God, he's talking about a reverent respect for the nature and glory, grandeur, supremacy, greatness, and inconceivable nature of God. And if he were to show himself, if the angels terrify us, God says, if I showed you me, 
That wouldn't terrify you. It would kill you. And this reveals one of the greatest necessities of the gospel. That in the man, Jesus, we get to see God himself. Because Colossians 1, 19 and Colossians 2, 9 say, For in him, that's Christ, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not some of the God was pleased to dwell, but what? Fullness of God. How much of it? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So there is no lack of God in Christ, which means there is no lack of joy. There's no lack of the joy of God in Christ, which means there is no lack of the nature of God in Christ, no lack of the attributes or character or experience or existence or reality of God in Christ. The fullness of all that encapsulates, listen to this sentence, the fullness of all that encapsulates God is contained in the human being, Jesus. I'm going to repeat that and then I'm going to explain it. The fullness of all that encapsulates God is contained in the human being, Jesus. So I just countered something I've been preaching for the last 45 minutes. I just said God can't be contained. And now I just told you that God is encapsulated, which means he's contained. I said God is encapsulated and he is contained in the human being, Jesus Christ. But God can't be contained. He can be in Christ. And that, that is not meant to make us think that God has minimized himself to become a human. That God has minimized himself to just be like, I guess I'll just be kind of God and less of God and a minimal version of God so I can fit into this human and I can save people. No, 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 no. It's the opposite. The fullness, all the fullness of God in Christ is not meant to convey a minimization of God the Father, but an exaltation and glorification and expansion of our perception of who Jesus is. It is meant to elevate the grandeur and supremacy and glory and rule and reign of our Lord and our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the tangible, reachable, touchable, physical being that we get to have and possess, whom we get to love and know and see and talk to and pray to and understand and put a literal physical image of his face in our head, which one day we will see, we get to finally experience God. God has finally made himself findable and reachable and touchable and tangible and discoverable in Jesus. That, for us, is the necessity of the gospel. And that truth becomes even more gloriously satisfying to us when we consider what it is in which God dwells. And Paul tells us in verse 16 that God dwells in unapproachable light. 
The Greek word for light is phos, P-H-O-S. That's the phonetic spelling, phos, which we use in English for lots of things. For example, photo, right? Which, what does a photo do? It captures what? Light and stamps an image with light. Phos has a vast spectrum of meanings in scripture. Jesus uses this word in Luke 8, 16 when he's talking about lighting a lamp in your home. Okay, so that's a minor nothingness kind of use or example of the word phos, of light. But in Matthew 17, 2, this word is used to describe the transfiguration of Jesus and the glory of God. It says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So here, the light is much more than a lamp in your home, but a physical and viewable expression of God's glory in Jesus. And this same light of glory becomes even more prominent in eternity. As John tells us in Revelation 21, verses 22 through 23, that our eternal life in New Jerusalem, he tells us about our eternal life in New Jerusalem, and he writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. <clears throat> so we can see the vast spectrum of uses for this Greek word phos. So we must determine where the word light in this verse lands on that spectrum. Is it a simple small flame, a light bulb in your home, the sun, the moon, or something greater? Well, in verse 16, we have the noun or the place in which God dwells, which he says is light. So it's light in which he dwells. But we are given a significant contextual hint with the adjective unapproachable that changes the information we know about the light. Unapproachable is a word that is only used this one time in all of Scripture. The root Greek word of unapproachable means to go to. But here in this verse... That root word has a prefix on it that conveys the opposite. It puts an A in front of it, like an antithesis to the root word. And so this word with that prefix that gives it the opposite meaning, this word now means in Greek, to not go to. So this really means unable to go to. We are unable to go to his light. If the light simply meant a small flame, then it would be a place where we could go to. If it was something small, it would be approachable. If the light were the sun, I mean, we can't really go to the sun, but we do send probes to the sun. We can't land on the sun, but we sent a probe like right to the face of the sun. I don't know how that thing didn't start on fire, but it didn't. And so technically, the sun is approachable and it's physical. So we can actually look at it and view it and go to it. We might not get to its surface, but we can approach it. So this light that God dwells in has to be something that is not approachable, that we cannot go to. And the only thing in scripture that is described as both light and unapproachable is God's glory. 
Paul doesn't intend to teach us the doctrine of God's glory in this verse. He isn't giving us a dissertation on the glory of God. He intends to create in us a heart of praise and a swelling up of joy when we consider the glory of God. And the glory of God is magnified when we consider the nature of God, which we've just done for almost an hour. Is we've discovered and described and talked about the grandeur of God and, and, and the unfathomable reality of his existence and who he is and what he's like. And I could sit here and describe all the unknowables about God on and on and on and on. And I could even sit here and describe all the knowables about God. And we would still never even touch what he's really like. Understanding him is unapproachable. To elevate the necessity of our satisfaction in God's glory. Paul modifies the language about the glory of God by telling us that it is beyond the capability of the human mind to not only see it or consider it, but to even imagine his glory. We can't even imagine his glory. We talk about glory. What is glory? Glory is a word we use that describes the expression of God's holiness. God's holiness is revealed. It's seen. It's visible. And we see it in Jesus' behavior. When Jesus does good things, that's holy. When you do good things, that's holy. So what, when we talk about glorify God, when we're given a command, glorify God, if I say to you, go and glorify God, what that means is go do holiness. Because when you do holiness, you are showing the holy nature of God. And when God's nature is seen or visualized, whether it's in behavior or it's in light, it is called glory. And Scripture teaches us that, that this holiness, when you behave in holiness, when you act in holy ways in Christ, you are glorifying God because you're magnifying or revealing or expressing or showing his holiness. And God says, well, that's one way I show my holiness. And then I show my holiness by doing holy and good things to you. And I show my holiness that we call glory in Jesus Christ and everything he does. But I also want to just show you my holiness in a light that is so bright that if you looked at it, you would die. Because to see God's glory would mean to see the totality of who God is. And you can't see the totality of who God is because God is infinite. And you have a finite mind, so your finite mind could not contain the infinite nature of God. So to see the glory of God would mean to see the, total, the totality of all of God's holiness. And all of God's holy, holiness is God's primary characteristic. It is the one word that completely describes the nature of God in totality, which means to see the glory of God would be, would be to see the totality of God, which is an infinite, whom is an infinite God that our finite minds couldn't fathom, grasp, contain, hold, we would die. And therein lies the magnificence of the gospel. <laughs> like, this is all bad news if Jesus doesn't show up. This is like, cool, good for you, God. Thanks for making me and then making me in, unable to enjoy you. You sound pretty awesome, but thanks. You know, we're just left to die. That's terrible news. And that's why the gospel is called the gospel, because it means good news. 
That is the magnificence of the gospel, that God, who is unviewable and unapproachable because of the magnitude of his holiness expressed in his glory, is too much for fallible and finite human beings to comprehend and absorb. And yet we are given grace to know God, to see God, to experience the love of God. To treasure God. To spend eternity in that very glory that is too much for us. Because our Savior, Jesus, has made a way. And when we put on our immortal bodies, we will then have the capacity to absorb the glory of God. And the light of God in the Lamb of God forever. And every moment that passes... The holiness of God will magnify our understanding of who he is and we will, our joy in him will never reach a moment of dissatisfaction or, in, or not increase in satisfaction. We will be pleased eternally and it requires an immortal body to do so. And in order to get there, an unapproachable God who dwells in his unapproachable glory that we call light needs to make himself approachable. And that's what Jesus did. If that isn't cause for a doxology of praise than nothing is. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus, for becoming, being, doing the thing that we can't do and that is saving us and making this God who is beyond our comprehension a God whom we can grasp and know and love and, and, and literally approach. I think of Ephesians 3 where you literally command us not only to approach you, but to do it with boldness and confidence. That is how great Jesus is. So it is in Christ and in Christ alone that we come to you with prayer. It's in Christ and Christ alone that we look forward to our eternal life dwelling in your presence. And it is because of Christ and Christ alone that we will spend every moment of this life magnifying your glory. We pray we would. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.